Well, we're going to be in John chapter 20 this evening. Speaking about how quickly things went this summer. John chapter 20, you can find that on 1077 in your pew Bibles. And we're going to start at verse 19 to the end of the chapter. John 20, 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the, others, the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In our text this evening, these next two verses, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, dear congregation, Christ now has died and has risen from the dead, completing his work, and here he is appearing to his disciples, proving to them that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and that his work is completed. And then we have this very striking section, these last couple of verses here, where he stops, John pauses it, and he looks at you, and he says, by the way, this was written for you, that you may believe. And at that moment, this book, these, this ink on these pages is no longer ink, and it jumps out at us, at our hearts. It becomes personal to us. This was written that you may believe. Well, tonight I want to ask some very basic questions. What does it mean that you may believe? Sometimes we take that for granted. What does it mean to believe? For example, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, seeing is believing, which is a pretty basic phrase, and it makes a lot of sense, seeing is believing, because once you see something, you have to believe it, right? Well, Thomas here is saying this. He's asking, in a, in a way, for more evidence. He wants to see it, to believe. Otherwise, he won't, he says. Last year, I had a similar situation. We sold our house in Kansas City to move up here, and I felt like Thomas a little bit. 
There's a lot that has to go into selling a house and buying another house. And until all of those little things, all those checkboxes are done, I felt the same way. I'm not really going to believe it until those final things are signed. I had to see the, the contract to believe it. Well, we can't really argue with that. To seeing is seeing is believing. But then I have a question for you, and I want you to think about this. If seeing is believing, perhaps you're not aware of this, but Christ, who does he come to after his resurrection? Does he go back to the leader of the Jews? Does he show him his, his hands, his scars, his side, and say, see and believe to the leaders of the Jews? Couldn't he have done that? Come to the world, shown them his body, that he did, in fact, resurrect from the dead? If seeing is believing, and we're talking about souls and eternal damnation, why did Christ not do that? Why did he not come at a time where we had technology, like today, where it could be recorded? Why do we have a book in front of us instead of some sort of a scientific proof of Christ? Well, tonight we're going to look at all these questions, and we're going to look at this, what is seeing, what is believing, that is. And we're going to look at this through the lens of 30 and 31, and John really gives, gives us an explanation for those things. The sermon title tonight is, That You May Believe, and the two points, the visible signs for them and the written word for you. In point one, we're going to tackle verse 30, and the second point, we're going to look at verse 31. First, the visible signs for them, and at verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Before John tells us even the meaning, the reason for the writing, that is, that you would believe, he tells us about himself, who's speaking to you. He's saying, by the way, this is one of his disciples this is one who has seen Christ, his whole ministry, with his very eyes. We've gone through the signs together. He saw Lazarus come out of the tomb with his own eyes. He felt in his bones, he felt in his muscles, and his stomach, the weakness when he was on the waves, being tossed to and fro, and then seeing Christ walk on those waves, controlling them. He tasted himself the wine that was made water, or from, from water. He tasted the bread and the fish that Christ multiplied. He heard when Christ spoke to his, the officials saying that your son will live. Go, your son will live. In 1 John, John does something very similar to this. He tells us about who he is, about who the disciples were. I want to read this for you. 1 John 1, 1, the very first verse. He explains who the disciples were, what they experienced. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's listing all the senses concerning the word of life. Jesus, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John is drawing our attention to them, the disciples, the men through whom God has chosen to speak to us, to write to us. So who are they? That's important for us, isn't it? The bigger question is why the Bible? They're the ones who wrote the gospel accounts for us. Where did this come from? Why do we trust the word? Who are these men? Do we trust these men because in themselves they were wise men? They were very insightful men. They always knew at all times what Christ was teaching. Of course, we know that's not the case. Were they loyal? Were they fearless? 
No, these brothers were very honest about their shortcomings. And in fact, in chapter 20, we didn't read the whole chapter, but we still see at this point, what is the state of the disciples before Christ returns to them? It's as if the disciples were going to disband before seeing Christ. The disciples were in a state of unbelief, struggling. And again, they don't hide this from us. We see Mary even, that starts in chapter 20, we hear about Mary, and when she sees the empty tomb, how does she react? But she thinks that the body has been stolen. Peter, when he sees the tomb, the empty tomb, and other accounts, though Christ has told them about this many times, it says he marvels, he walks away marveling. On the road to Emmaus, there's two disciples there, Christ visits them. He masks himself so they can't see who it is. He asks them what happened. And they said, well, we hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, but he was killed. In other words, they're saying it wasn't him who we thought it was. And Christ says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. Now, the disciples didn't hide this from us, who they are. They, they're not chosen because of anything in themselves. So why the disciples? Well, as we read here in 1 John 1, 1, but also in John 1, 16, John tells us, and this is the most important thing about them, from his fullness, that is Jesus, from his fullness we have all received. If I were to tell you tonight, and you knew me, that I was going to give you $100 million, you'd laugh, because you knew that I don't have $100 million to give. So these men, the most important thing for us to understand is that they have received from the Lord to give. In this account tonight, at verse 19, Jesus appearing to his disciples, we see this. We see that they have received, not given to the Lord. We find them in the locker room. They're scared, understandably. They don't know what the Jews are going to do to them. Christ appears. He says, peace be to you. And he shows them his hands and his side. Make no mistake here, this is a one-sided transaction between them. If you think about organizations that we have today where this membership is involved, for some reason when I think of membership, I always think of Costco or something like that. But where there's members involved in an organization, oftentimes the members themselves have to give something to the organization. They pay something, right? So in the example of Costco, you pay whatever the fee is now for a year. And then when you go in, you show your ID, and you're basically saying, you know, I, I deserve this. I've given my dues. And maybe in some strange groups, people might get a tattoo or something like that to, be, to show that they're a member. And at the beginning of a meeting, maybe they would show, you know, here I have this tattoo. Look, we all went through this painful process here. Well, in this picture, Christ shows them his wounds, his scars. And he's the only one. Because he's the only one who's paid He's the only one who's giving anything. He's, he's showing them the payment, and he's giving them what he's paid for, that is peace. And so it's important for us to understand the most important thing about the disciples is that they have received to give to us, received from God himself. And I want to talk about two ways quickly in which they've received. The first way, and it's very clear that, we, that we've read this evening, and here in, in, in verse 30, They've seen many signs. They've witnessed. They've seen the signs of Christ. How many signs? Did they have to pull together? Did they have to go through their emails over the past five or six years to try to string together an argument? No, 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 no. Many signs they have seen. In fact, 
Imagine if our Bible was the size of an 18-wheeler truck and we had to go through that. Would that be helpful for us? No, actually. It's hard enough with the size of the Bible as it is. The richness that is there already is enough for us. But they had seen many of the signs enough to fill the world if they're all written, they said. And it's not about believing them, but believing because they had seen God. The very glory of God, enough to fill the world. And these signs, we've discussed, the reason they're called signs, these are miracles, but they're called signs because they point to a deeper meaning. But as I thought about it this week, I realized, too, that there's a big difference between signs that we may think and perhaps what you're thinking with the word signs here. Because if we think of a sign, maybe a billboard on the side of the road, it's something that points to something else. But that sign in and of itself is worthless. It's pointing to something. Think of, for example, if you were driving through the Arizona desert and your car breaks down. It's been a couple hours. You haven't seen anybody. Maybe three or four hours go by. In the summertime, you're going to be very, very thirsty. It'll be very dangerous at that point for you. But maybe there's a billboard there, and it says 60 miles, there's water. It's an advertisement for some kind of water. Well, that sign in and of itself will give you no water. It's worthless. It's just a sign. It doesn't mean anything. But the signs that the the disciples saw, these were the very works of God. I've used this illustration before, but I want to bring it before you again. These were the works of God. It's as if the world itself was covered in darkness, and when Christ came... Heaven itself opened, a lightning bolt struck the the planet and started peeling back the darkness, the darkness that was death, the darkness that was sin, the darkness that was sickness. And this is the ministry of God healing hundreds, probably thousands of people. This is what they saw, the very works of God, these miracles. And the second thing that they received, we see in our passage again as well. Verse 22, after he breathes on them, he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14 of John, he says to them that when he leaves, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, that that they can have unity with Christ, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of God, they would do greater works than Christ. And if that doesn't give you pause, I don't know what would. Do greater works than Jesus. Of course, it's not quality of works, but quantity of works through his power. Here, Christ also says, what are they going to be able to do? What works will they be able to do? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. That's the very work of God. And Jesus equips them. We know them as the apostles, the very foundations of the church. And how do we know that they were equipped with the Holy Spirit, but that they did the works of God? Christ said this too. He said, if you don't believe me for my words, the things I'm telling you, believe me by the works that I'm doing, that you see this is the work of God. And same for the apostles. I want to read from you to you Acts 5. The works that the apostles did. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats. Why? That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them for healing. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
Brothers and sisters, the most important thing for us to understand is that the apostles were men who had received from the fullness of God and now delivers that to us, which brings me to my second point. Now we have the word that they have written for us, the written word for you, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The most important thing I want us to walk away this evening is understanding what John is saying here, that believing is personal. He's saying this is for you. And we see this in John 20. We see that faith is personal. And not only that faith is personal throughout this chapter, but that Christ comes to his people to bring faith in them. It's a beautiful chapter. Before he dies on the cross, he tells them that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. And that's what we see. And yet, in this picture in John 20, we see that Christ goes after his sheep, each one of them, in these beautiful images. We didn't read about Mary in these first 18 verses, but we see the picture here. Mary, who loves the Lord, she's the last one at his side on the cross, and she's the first one at his tomb. She doesn't want to leave her Savior, Mary Magdalene. And then when John and Peter come to look at the tomb, they leave, actually, and go back home. Mary stays. She doesn't want to leave her Savior. And Christ meets her there, and she doesn't recognize him. She's weeping. That could be one reason. She doesn't recognize him until he speaks to her, Mary. She sees it's her Lord and her Savior. We hear about John and Peter after the women tell them about the empty tomb. They come running down. Apparently, John was faster than Peter. But when he gets there, he hesitates to go into the tomb. Peter enters in. And then John enters in, and he sees the linen cloths. And it tells us here he believes. It's almost as if John is saying, we finally believed. Yes, Christ taught them over and over that he would rise the third day. But John tells us, he's honest with us about that. He finally believes what Christ was saying. And then the disciples here, we read about this a little bit earlier. Christ visits them in the room, the locked room. Peace be with you. And he shows his, his hands and his side that they may believe. And they say, this is the Lord. They, re- they recognize this is the Lord. And then we have Thomas. Poor Thomas, doubting Thomas. We give him that name. Of course, we would just like him. But this is recorded for us so that we could believe. We've been in similar situations, I think, when Thomas has probably gotten into an argument with the other disciples here. And he says to them, it's almost like you guys believe just by seeing. If I were there, I wouldn't have just believed if I saw. I would have asked to touch him. Now, he rejects the rest of the disciples' testimony. But Jesus loves him, and he goes to him, and we can see the love of his voice. He says, put your hand here. He knows what Thomas needs. He says, look at these wounds. They're for you, too. Touch if you need to touch. Even amongst Thomas' stubbornness, Jesus doesn't leave him. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. The interesting thing is that we're not really told that Thomas touches him, actually, if you read it. Thomas reacts immediately, my Lord and my God. And that's really what I want to get at right now. What does Thomas say? My Lord, my God, mine. The book of John says it was written for you that you may proclaim these same words. 
So I want to ask you tonight, how do you approach the Bible? Is it personal when you approach it? Or do you receive it as information? The term that we use, right, in the business world, receive something as information. It's kind of the lowest on the totem pole, if we're honest about it. You know, you don't have to discuss it for hours. You don't have to debate. You don't have to, to, to vote on anything. We're just going to receive it as information. We'll skim over it. Well, that's a temptation for us, isn't it, every time we read the Bible, if we're honest, to look at it as a history book, perhaps a reference book for moral decisions that we've made in the past, and we want to give reason for that, or we see someone else making a different choice than us. We're equally guilty if we look at it as just beautiful writing, interesting writing, because it is beautiful. It's the most beautiful uh, writing in the world. And it's deep. But John says there's one reason that it's been written, and there's one reason you go to it that you may believe. It's written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, that you may live. The congregation, I, I want to speak to the young people particularly for a little bit tonight. What does it mean that you may live? Pastor Rossi talked about that this morning. He preached about this. What does the world say about sin? What are we being saved from? One day, we will all stand before God. There'll be nothing that we can hide. He'll know all. We won't stand with our family side by side, that our fathers or our brothers or sisters could talk for us, that we could agree with them, what they're saying, but that we would stand before him. And when? Maybe you might feel like it's a long way off, but it could be tonight. And tonight, you could... If you were standing before God, you could quote all of John if you knew it. You could quote all of the Bible. But that wouldn't help you because what you need is to say what Thomas said. My Lord and my God. It has to be personal. Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, he's going to enter the midst of the people and he's going to divide them. Some to the right and some to the left. Those on his right will enter with him into heaven, those rooms that he has prepared, to unspeakable beauty, to peace, restoration, and on the left, unimaginable pain, eternal damnation and the wrath of God for, on sin. As we die, we enter these realms. And we're told that those that Christ pushes to the left, that is, those that are destined for eternal damnation will say, Lord, Lord, we did works in your name. What does that mean? But we have to understand that people even within the church who saw with their eyes the works of God but never personally said, my Lord and my God, they'll be pushed to the left towards hell by the very hands that bear the marks that was for their sin. Young people, these words have been recorded for you that you would not go to eternal fire, but that you would be saved, that you would live. I was raised in a Christian home, and it's what a wonderful blessing it is throughout your whole life. But we know there's a danger there, isn't there, as well, in assuming that my family is saved, assuming that I know the gospel, I know enough about the Bible. God demands all of you. And when you're young, I know it's difficult when you're growing up, you don't know yourself very well, and you might have different versions of yourself. This is my church self. 
This is my Sunday self. This is when I'm around the youth group. This is when I'm around school. This is when I'm around these friends or those friends. If you go before God tonight, your church self, your Sunday self is not enough. God demands all of you because he paid for all of you. He demands that your heart be transformed by his work. There's a famous preacher, many of you would know his name, Charles Spurgeon. He gives many wonderful illustrations, and I want to give to you one of those illustrations tonight, and it goes like this. If we had a plate of food up here, perhaps whatever your favorite dish is, right? Just imagine smelling it, right? You might start to, your mouth might start to water. And then on the left, we had a garbage can, and we had pig slop, rotted food, garbage. And we had a pig come out here. Many of you would know this as farmer. What's he going to go to, the beautiful food on the right or the pig slop? He's going to go to the pig slop because that's what pigs eat. That's what they love. Well, if you took that pig and you turned him into a man, what would he do? He wouldn't keep going to the pig slop anymore. He doesn't love the pig slop. He would love the beautiful food here on this other side. And this is the world. He's eating from the world. And the Bible gives us even more graphic illustration about a dog that returns to its vomit. This is a picture of what it is to have the Lord work in your heart, that you would desire him. You can't have both the world and Jesus. Often in Scripture, we're given the illustration of a heart of stone changing to a heart of flesh. And I think this is also a good and important illustration. Because if you have a man here and his skin is stone and you give him a pinch, there's going to be no reaction. But if you turn his stone into skin again and you pinch him under the arm or something like that, he's going to react. And that's the same with our hearts. When the Lord works in your heart, he changes it from a heart of stone that doesn't react to him to a heart that desires him, that seeks him, that wants to know him, that loves him, that's pulled by him, that again reacts to his word. So are things okay now? Are you okay with things that they are the way they are now, young people? Do you want to balance your desires and your goals for the world, and also your beliefs? Do you want to have both? Well, in chapter 5 of John, we talked about this a little bit. The Jews wanted both. Christ said, you can't have the glory of God because you want the glory of men. You have the glory of one another. You know, they would pray on the street corners. That was, what, that was their reward. When they could be praying, again, to have their sins forgiven, to be with God, they'd rather have a pat on the back. Probably not even a pat on the back, honestly. But they wanted the glory of man. Their hand was closed around it, so they couldn't receive from God. But I'm telling you tonight to let go of the world, because you can't hold both. You can't be hot and cold. You have to choose one. To let go of the world and cling to the cross. Brothers and sisters, I asked a question earlier at the beginning of my exhortation. Believing is true, right? Seeing is believing, excuse me. But if seeing if believing is true, I asked, well, why didn't Christ then appear to the world in his body? The answer, of course, is that seeing is not believing. If Christ appeared in his body, what would that mean? That our eyes, our physical eyeballs, the organ in our head is what makes us believe? We know that that's not true. No, Christ says here, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There were so many at the time of Christ, they saw the signs. 
We talked about that a couple weeks ago as well. They saw that Christ conquered death. It was undeniable. They didn't deny that he raised Lazarus, but rather they chose death over life. And so if you're here tonight, perhaps you've been in the church your whole life, and you've seen with your physical eyes, in other words, you've heard the preaching of the word, you've seen the way God works in other people's lives, maybe you've been raised in a Christian home, but if you haven't said, my Lord and my God, I'm asking you then to turn to him now. Jesus doesn't come to every believer in his physical body. He doesn't, that's right. But he does come to every single believer in spirit. None will be left behind. We see that, a beautiful picture of that in 20, this, this whole chapter. And what is the message? But that these are, this is the work of God to save you, to pull you from the fire. And this work of God is from the Father, given to the Son, He does it perfectly, and he gives it to the apostles, and they do it perfectly. And this word is written again for you. Take this picture of Thomas, doubting Thomas. Maybe you can understand where he's coming from. Maybe you've doubted. Well, Christ here is holding his hands out to you figuratively, showing you the scars. This is the written word for you. He says, look at the scars. Don't disbelieve but believe. Now I want to ask if you can say the same thing that Thomas did. My Lord and my God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come before you this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fullness of of the power of God, the works of God shown to the disciples and the leading of the Holy Spirit to bring this to us, that these words can jump off the page, that these words can pull a man from hell, can turn a man's life around entirely, and can lead young ones to eternal heaven, to know you. And yet, Lord, if we're honest, we don't always feel like that pig who's turned into a man. Sometimes we feel like we're that pig still. We admit that the world's temptations are strong. And yet, Lord, we know that you have told us that we have peace with you, and in the world we will have tribulation, but with you peace, and to take heart because you have overcome the world. We thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice for us. We pray again that you'd forgive us. We pray this in your son's name.